Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easy, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. Here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify, and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like I have an outlet for the creativity and ideas I want to share with the world. I recommend you give it a try. We all have a voice, so share it with the world. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast. My name is Pete. My brother Luke and I are going to continue our discussion on Genesis 6-4 and related texts as we try to rightly divide the word according to Scripture. Understand what it's saying. My friend Don joins me as well. So I was looking into the, uh, uh, to the giants and... Let's see, Genesis 6, 4, correct? Yeah. It says, there were giants in the earth in those days. And then there's a semicolon. And then it says, and after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. It almost separates it as in the giants are the giants and the sons of men. See, this is this is causing me to go with the Seth, uh, line oh. of Seth uh, type of a situation. Um, just wondering what you guys think of that. Yeah, let's uh, let's bring up uh, Bible Hub so we can see. Don, do you care to expound on that? Um, what what is what is it particularly about that sentence, or maybe it's the punctuation that's causing you to to think about Seth? Because I'm I'm not I'm not following your line of thinking. So. Um... It says, there were giants in the earth in those days. So, it's talking about giants, which is your noun. It's talking about the earth, and it's saying those days. So, when I say when I say to you, hey Luke, in those days I used to do this, or I used to do that. Those days tends to take me, at least, and I'm not, I'm not speaking with any authority here. I'm, this is a question. It takes me into history. So when I say those days, it's history. I'm not, I'm not referring to something in the future, and I'm not referring to something in the present. And so what, what it's saying to me is that in those days, uh, let's see, there were giants in the earth in those days. And then semicolon, new thought, and after that. So it's after that takes us to a place that's further into the future from those days. And then it says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. And obviously there's the Seth line, uh, sons of God, possibly, and then there's men. Now, I also see that sons of God is the same use in, in Job. It's used all, it, it's referred to as, as the angels. 
So I think that there's room for that too, but I'm, I guess I'm just kind of hung up on the, in those days. And then after that part, I, yeah, I think what, I think what he's saying, Luke is when it says, um, when the sons of God, you're, you're going, is the connecting of when to the first part of the sentence or to the latter or both? Is that kind of what you're, what you're saying? Well, exactly, because it says those days again to history, and then it says, um, and also after that. Yep. Yeah, maybe so, also is the key word. Right. So let's look at some other translations, just just so we can see kind of if that semicolon is distinguishing two different thoughts, or if it's a continuation. So um, NIV set, uh, has a hyphen. Nephilim, they use Nephilim in place of giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans. Um, ESV, Nephilim on the earth in those days, comma, and also afterward, comma, when the sons of God. So it seems like a lot of them say when the sons of God, um, or they say they were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God. So it's a continuation of thought. It's like saying, I had I had a three-day party at my house, and and also after that, people stayed around. So it's basically saying they were there then and they were there after. Now, a lot of times you'll hear us or others say, what are those days? And we say the days of Noah. I've heard some commentators say it's the days of Jared. So that might be worth looking into in terms of like, when did, why is it Jared and not Noah? And what, when did Jared live? Okay, real, um, real quick. So yeah. so when you're saying those days, it's not just a simple, the simple grammar in English that we use for those days. It maybe refers to a period of time, like we say the Great Depression or... Those yeah. days means the days of Jared, or those days means the day of Noah. Right. So when you were kind of saying, well, you're wondering if it leaves the door open for an alternate theory like the Sethite line, are you saying that it's because it's delineating one event from another? It appears to be that it appears way for to be, me. Yeah. Um, how, however, it's nothing that I would, you know stake in the ground right it's something that i would just bring up and see what people think about it right right yeah and i think i think if you look at just the whole of the sentence they were on the earth in those days and they were and also afterward when the sons of god came into the daughters of men so that means you know procreating and they bore children to them so the way the way it appears, looking at multiple translations, is the sons of God, the angels, did this thing in these days, and they also did them after. So lately I've been leaning more towards the... Luke, I'm not sure where you fall on that. Maybe you're still figuring that out. But the, the second incursion, like this was a continual... And I think that's kind of what the sentence is saying. It's like, okay, it happened initially... But yeah, it actually continued to happen. I'm not necessarily saying after the flood, but it it really comes down to what is in those days. 
So are the giants are the giants the same as the men of renown? That's what I believe the sentence is saying. Yeah. Um, those. So and and you know I guess if we wanted to get really deep and technical, we could go to the um, the Strongs and go and you know how like there's feminine and masculine words, right? Right, right? So grammatically you can connect the words. I would imagine if we went and did that with the word those, it would connect it to the Nephilim or giants okay. and say, those were the men of renown, the famous ones. Okay. So uh, just real quick on that point, one of the rebuttals to the Sethite view is what famous Sethite line do we know of? And I don't think there is any. I mean, they perished in the flood for one thing. Um, they didn't continue. And I don't know of any writings, biblical or otherwise, that show. Here was a famous, mighty Sethite. However, the flip side is, we've got all sorts of legend, legendary figures like Hercules and, mm-hmm. and you know, all of, all of these... I mean, I want to say mythological, but that I'm, I'm learning that that word has really flipped 180 degrees from what it used to mean. It used to just mean story, like the etymology of the word means mm-hmm. story. Um, and I think I'm quoting Mike Kaiser on that. So it doesn't necessarily mean false. Like we, we say it's just made up, a myth. Mm-hmm. But um, So I, I just wanted to read uh, another translation, uh, which kind of... So in... Dr. Laura Sangler's book, chapter seven on the origin of the Nephilim. She, she uses the living translation, new King James amplified NIV, a bunch of uh, different translations to cover Genesis six, one through four. So I'm going to read the living translation and um, then I'm going to ask a question. Do we, can we find in our Bible anywhere where it says all flesh perished because there is the theory talking about you know you asked the question where i stand second incursion that type of thing there is the theory that some survived right and even of that series of uh, uh, graham hancock's the mythology of different nations there are stories of these individuals these uh powerful one these strong men that survived this cataclysm of uh, event i don't know i i don't i'd have to do a little more bible i i i thought i always was taught that was the whole purpose why god caused the flood to come was to wipe everything out except for what was in noah's ark but i don't know if i i know a scripture where it says all flesh perished you know what i'm saying we might need to look that up let's uh let's but, put that on so, the, um, the docket for a, a future discussion to for us to dig into so i'm just going to read uh the living translation has an interesting kind of added verbiage or adjectives um i'll just start from the beginning now a population explosion took place upon the earth 
This is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, Living Translation. It was at this time that beings from the spirit world looked upon the beautiful earth women and took any they desired to be their wives. Then Jehovah said, my spirit must not forever be disgraced in man. Holy evil is he. Holy evil as he is. I will give him 120 years to mend his ways. In those days, and even afterwards, when the evil beings from the spirit world were sexually involved with human women, their children became giants of whom so many legends are told. kind of interesting and I, I would venture to be of the school of thought that the author being Moses is recounting those days and he's prefacing the time before Noah's Ark and this explosion this population explosion because of this interaction between the spirit realm and the human flesh and then he's saying well after the flood there was also a lineage of these beings that were around. So. Yeah, it's interesting too, um, the 120 years thing. I always thought, oh, that's when God shortened. Have you ever heard that one, Don, or at least thought yeah. about that? That's when, oh, people used to live 900 years, you know, mm -hmm. and then God shortened their life. But I think it's actually referring to the time period from when the clock was ticking to the flood. Do you think it was like the, the preaching of Noah? Yeah, so and the building he, of the even ark. Even if he and... wasn't verbally preaching, repent, 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 just by his action of building this ark was a sign to the populations around him, hey, you need to change because once this is completed, and maybe it took him 120 years, it took him 100 years, whatever, and then judgment came. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jot that down as another question for us to dig into. Is that referring to the clock ticking now 120 years and then the flood came? And can we prove that or at least say that that's likely the case? Oh, Go ahead. I was just going to say good question on... On the on the grammar and how that the uh, punctuation is used there because we do want to be careful, and um, so whether it was Seth or some other meaning, we would have to have reasons to to come to that. So it wouldn't just be, well, I'm not sure if it's connecting it. We would have to have a reason to insert something that that we don't see, and that's I think that's kind of where I would go with that is we don't see anything about. Seth, we see whatever sons of God is, and then we see daughters of men as distinct uh, phrases. Um, so as you're talking, I looked uh, the Great Flood, chapter 7 of Genesis, is recorded in verse 5. Um, uh, that's his age. Uh, it's actually verse 4. Um, for after... 
seven days more, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. So that is canon. It's in the word. I trust the word that none of these creatures uh, survived. That's that's what I would. I, so it. So I, to answer your question, I would I would prep to say that probably was a second incursion, because why would God allow tainted DNA on the ark? Right. With uh, so what he's referring to there is some have theorized that perhaps Ham's wife was carrying maybe a recessive uh, genetic line of Nephilim and that didn't show up in her or immediately in their children, but then it, it kind of procreated from there. But I, I, I think there's some reasons to say that that isn't the case. Um, I forget who it was, but they were talking about the genealogy of Ham and it'll be like, oh, well then all of these would have been corrupted and it doesn't, it doesn't add up. So, so would, um, two, two points I just wanted to, uh, one thing I wanted to revisit really quick and this isn't, uh, this isn't, uh, ha ha, I found it in scripture mm-hmm. and this, that's not what <laughs> gotcha. this is about. Um, I believe, I want to say it's in either Colossians or Hebrews where they, uh, discuss angels and you might've already talked about this in a prior episode, but. Okay. Um, when they discuss angels, or they discuss us as being like the angels, and that we will not marry or be giving in marriage. Yeah. And that is something that kind of tended to have me leaning towards spirits being, you know, not sexual beings. Not able to do this. Yep. So, I, and, and again, that's just, that's just something that I've, that I've seen um, in Scripture. And the second, uh, the second part of this is... Uh, has escaped me at this moment and I'll... Yeah, when you think of it, uh, let's come back to that. Yeah. So let's... Uh, I'm just going to do a search for that. Okay, so Matthew 22. So this is when Jesus is uh, answering, the qu- answering the question about heaven. So, okay, so this is the Sadducees who do not believe in bodily resurrection, if I have that correct. So they were trying to play gotcha with Jesus mm-hmm. and stump him on this one. So they probably thought they were pretty clever. Um, so they came up to Jesus and said, oh, okay, well, I'll just read it verbatim. Uh, Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So now they they start with that premise from Moses, and now they're going to go to a hypothetical. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third, down to the seventh. So he's they're they're kind of creating this straw man of what if you know Elizabeth Taylor with her seven marriages, mm-hmm. <laughs> every one of her husbands died. Well, I think you'd suspect foul play there, probably, you know, a little bit Clinton-esque, if I can go that way. But um, anyway, so they died. Uh, cursed woman, right? Uh, and after all them, the woman died. 
In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What are the Sadducees getting at? They're asking about marriage, and they're asking about the resurrection, meaning spiritual afterlife, right? So that's the context. And Jesus is like, no, that kind of thing doesn't happen in heaven. So number one, it's it's delineated to a location. This kind of thing doesn't go on. You'll be like the angels um, who don't marry. So they're saying, in heaven, angels don't marry. And it's also... He's also answering, we have marital connection in this life, but in heaven we won't have that same marital connection because we will be as the angels in the sense of, and I believe it's and he's implying immortality and spiritual bodies, whatever those are, right? Glorified bodies. So it's limiting, limiting it to the idea of a marriage connection, that won't be in heaven, and also a location that doesn't happen in heaven. Okay. Uh, the Kind of the, the elephant in the room right now is the word sex, I think. Yes, yes, and I'm going to get to that. So, that. so what he's not saying is it's not possible to have sexual relations. What he's saying is they don't marry. So you're saying promiscuous sex in heaven. So I'm saying this kind of thing, marriage, and the idea of being connected to a spouse is not something that happens in heaven. Okay. And what we're saying, Genesis 6 is saying, is number one, it didn't happen in heaven. And number two, Jesus never is never answering about the ability to procreate. He's saying... You're not going to belong to one another, marriage, and it doesn't happen in heaven. So the angels left, as Jude says, the angels that left their first estate, their own habitation, mm-hmm. referring to this Genesis 6-4 event. They're saying they left. They did this thing on earth. So, yes, so to your to your question... Isn't this saying, hey, they're spiritual, this kind of thing doesn't happen? I think there's enough precedent in other scriptures. I think we've talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, where the two angels walked into mm-hmm. into the town and the men wanted to have relations with them. Paul saying, be careful how you treat strangers. They might be angels, under, you might mm-hmm. entertain angels unaware. Mm-hmm. And there's other instances where angels appear as men. To people, so it's not necessarily Jesus' answer to their hypothetical is not necessarily excluding the possibility of procreation. He's saying in heaven these things don't go on, and he's talking about marriage mm-hmm. and who do you belong to, not necessarily procreation. It's not it's not answering the same question in terms of do they have the hardware to procreate on earth. When his answer was, in heaven, can they marry and belong to one another? 
And he's also talking about future. A future, uh, uh, the presence of the Lord. He's talking about a, a, a future. Because obviously we know, if you look at just, not the angelic, we just look at the humans, Adam and Eve. So when they were sinless, they had the hardware. As far as we know, they could have had many, many children before it's documented of, of Cain and Seth. Cain and Abel, rather. It's possible. It's not recorded because what did God tell his creation to do from animals and to Adam and Eve be fruitful and multiply and reap and, you know, so, and so it might be in the future, God's not going to have us procreate. No, that's that's an excellent segue because of one thing I forgot to mention as I was listening to discussions on that very question is, what is like the angels mean? Well, part of it is immortality. And we have children here partially because of mortality, right? To, to, to continue, continue the, the line. line. Yes. Exactly. And in heaven, there's no need for having children and having marriage and families and all of that because we're like the angels, immortal. So I think there's a a distinguishment between kind of the, ah, that means that angels can't procreate and they don't have physical bodies. I think it's, I think it's limited to marriage and what heaven is like, but... Feel feel free to push back more oh, sure. on that. No, yeah. as I do, I, I mean, I, I yeah. will definitely, yeah. you know, push back if I. There's one. There's only one thing that I would bring up when you talk about the angels uh, in bodily form um, going into Sodom. Okay. Um, yes, the men of Sodom wanted to know them, um, and had the angels allowed them to know them, I think that would completely clear up this whole thing. However, they did not and, you know, caused them blindness. And so I, I guess um, there being no, you know, direct instance in the word uh, that says that angels procreate. That actually came to fruition, you're saying. Right. Yes. Um, and, and so, but again, th- those angels were loyal to God and so their agenda was probably a lot different than it might have been the fallen angels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's, that's fair. Well, and, an, and another, thing, another thing to look at is, I mean, look at Adam and Eve. Yes, they're humans, but they're sons of God. They're made in God's image. They had the hardware. It's possible that the other sons of God, the angelic line, had the has the hardware too but if they if they are obedient if adam and eve is obedient and the angels are obedient and they're they're they stay holy before the lord they're not going to give over their flesh their when they're in the flesh because we we obviously know that Angels turn can can uh, be in a fleshly body, just like Adam and Eve. I think once you once you fall into the sinful uh, habits, 
you're opening up the door to things that God doesn't want us to be involved with. Yeah, so, um, what, but to your point, Don, you're right that we don't have any other scripture to say this happened other than what we're surmising is what Genesis 4 is saying exactly what happened. So we know that came into the daughters of men, that's a euphemism for sexual act, but... Well, I, th- I think, um, and, and I think the whole point of, of this uh, podcast is to show that um, there's a lot of stuff that God did not feel he needed to tell us. And, um, you know, when we are looking at pieces of scripture that uh, don't make sense to us uh, and being made in the image of God, we want to know more. And, you know, and we'll do our best to try to reach out and find out those things. Um, as an example... Um, when Christ was on God's altar on the cross, uh, we're not really, nothing is really shared about that to us because maybe that whole situation was just too horrifying or, or whatever, um, for us to be able to digest. Um, and all we get is, you know, Psalm 22, which talks, you know, directly about, you know, Jesus on the cross, pretty much looking down, not us looking up. And so I guess what I'm getting at is, um, yes, there are lots of uh, strange things in the Bible, and I think there's lots of strange things that God does, and there's lots mm-hmm. of stuff that we couldn't even comprehend right now. So, Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, the verse in, I think it's in Proverbs, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and the glory of man, or some, ver- I think translations say kings, to search a matter out. So there's that word esoteric, hidden hidden meanings, and um, and it's like it's like if you're into video games, you like this, you like Easter eggs, you like things that are hidden. Oh, look what I found! I found this this hidden level or this hidden power up right. or whatever. And God, the master, author, writer, storyteller, does the same thing, mm-hmm. and and he's he has things that he's purposely concealed for us to figure out and get excited about and go, wow, what if? Um, So yeah, so what it really comes back to is in our paradigms, and obviously, you know, if there was 100 people listening right now, you're going to have 100 different paradigms of, I can accept this idea of angels doing this, I can't, it has to be something else, it might be something, you're going to have along the whole spectrum, totally separate from what the text is saying. It's what we bring into it, right? And we want to exegete the text, not eisegete. We want to try to not have our bias that we bring into it, but we want to take out what it's saying. And that's where we've spent a good deal of time, and we can continue I'm really honing into this phrase, sons of God. What does it mean? How is it used? There's five times in the Old Testament where it's used. And, you know, where do we, could, could it be something else? Could it be human? Do you feel like, I mean, maybe you haven't looked into it completely, but do you feel like there's there's room for a possible human definition? Or you're maybe not sure yet, or... When you say human definition... Of sons of God. 
think I think that anything I think that anything is literally possible because of the existence of God. Right. Um, I also think that um, God has guided the translations uh, to us and uh, maintained um, maintained His Word. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, there's there's lots of room for lots of things uh, as long as it stays with, you know, the, the teachings of Scripture and, uh, yeah. and and whatnot. Because, like, if we were to go down a road where, um, you know, let's just say, you know, God says I want you to sin or whatever or, mm-hmm. you know, or I'm tempting you to do this um, and God doesn't tempt people. And so... But but at the same time, you come back to the question, how did Satan even get created? Because if God is completely sovereign, then that seed had to come from somewhere. So that's another yeah. topic. Yeah, obviously. yeah, it gets tricky. Yeah, but you're right. We have to preserve the integrity of the text, of what it's telling us, and not have something in conflict. And I think that... Like and it's very good questions. Like talking about what about where it says they'll be like the angels and don't marry, is does that prevent present a conflict? And that's those are very good questions to ask. And I and I think when when they're ta- when you're talking about marriage versus you know fleshly marriage, you know when God talks about marriage, He says that you'd come together and become one flesh, not necessarily one spirit and flesh, but everybody who has flesh has spirit too. Mm-hmm. So. Well, in fact, I just opened a can of worms there. I probably no. I, I just it, it is interesting looking. I think the t- talking on this this subject because we don't know. We get some glimpses of what heaven is going to be like. Um, will we have? And it seems to to me with Jesus saying that that there won't be uh, procreation. There won't be this, you know seed time and harvest because i thought there was a scripture where we're basically in a from the time of genesis to the end of this age that hasn't been fulfilled because christ hasn't came back yet there there's a the seed time and harvest uh principle and so maybe once we get to that conclusion of dispensation Maybe maybe there won't be procreation. I don't know. That that's the jury's kind of out on that. And I was just kind of skimming through Genesis and the creation story, and God said many different times, you know, to to talking about the animals. Um, he's blessing them. He said, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas, let the birds multiply in the earth." And um, and then in verse 26, he makes man in his own image, um, gives him dominion over him. He created female in 27, and God blessed Adam and Eve. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So here God is in the earliest days in paradise the animals, all the creatures of the world are multiplying. He creates Adam and Eve, blesses them, and they're procreating. So how many, because one of the curses after the fall was when she would procreate or, or can, uh, go through the labor, there was going to be pain. So it's interesting. It, it, 
I like to think about some of these things, but it, it's like, how many children did she have and how easily she had those children before uh, Cain and Abel? So that's kind of interesting thing to kind of sidebar. Yeah. So I was going to uh, go back to kind of this idea of angelic procreation, right? So in, in Genesis, uh, three, Genesis three fifteen, this is the, the, the declaration of God after the serpent had corrupted things. I will put enmity between thee, the serpent and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, while you were talking there, Luke, uh, apologize, wasn't super focused. <laughs> I'll listen to it again. Um, I, I looked up the Strong's on seed there, and it's the same word uh, both times. Zara, Strong's 2233. Um, definition, seed sowing offspring, a sowing seed, uh, semen, virile, offspring, descendants, posterity, children, um, child. So all that kind of language. Um, so we have to ask the question, where does the serpent, Satan, get seed how is he able to have and, children and offspring? And how, and how does a and how and how does a woman have seed? Well, so now I've heard that question too, but but technically, yeah, but technically speaking, the egg is seed because it's not it's not the vessel, whether it's a a sperm or an egg. It's the information is what makes a seed, right? You know, when you put a you know a, a tomato seed in the in your garden. It doesn't. It's a lineage of. It's the genetic. Code it's the code that's important, not of, the vessel. So, of so a woman, the human yeah. Mind. So a woman has seed, even though it's in an egg. She's got her what? What is it? Twenty three chromosomes she contributes, and then the man. Yeah, I think it. <laughs> we're yeah. doing some biology here. I think it comes together, you know, as a a new life as forty six chromosomes. But if I got that right. Yeah, so same word is used. So then you go, wait a minute. The serpent's going to have children. Um, and so we we kind of have this precedent of at least the, the prophecy that there's going to be a genetic line of Satan. Um, and that, that, I mean, I'm, we'll hopefully get into that in future talks about you know, that the Antichrist is likely going to be a literal um, procreation of Satan with, you know, a human. And we've we've brief, briefly touched on, I think, probably before we started recording, um, you know, satanic ritual abuse survivors that they've, they from conception, they were, like, dedicated to be in these awful situations where they're actually... Uh, forced to procreate with demonic beings, you know. I mean, you listen to some of these testimonies, and they're they're just horrific what they've been put through. Some have said, and I'm just quoting them, that they've literally, 
um, had sex with Satan. And that's what they were told. That's who it, who it was. Um, so just this idea, yeah, just this idea that as crazy as that sounds, like it's suggested here in 315 and then 6-4, unless we can come up with a better reason for sons of God meaning something other than angels, and when everything seems to suggest that it is angels, and I, not to get too far off into the weeds, but one of the things that I'm researching right now is how did the Second Temple Jewish period Christians and Jews and the early church fathers think of this Genesis 6-4 event? Because I think that's important to say, do we have the same idea they did? Because this is how they understood it. And what I'm hearing from from sources, and I, I have a, a book that I'm looking into that's like academic level study on exactly that from about, so Enoch, the book of Enoch, for example, which goes into greater detail of this Genesis 6-4 event, was written, they assume, about 300 BC. So from roughly that time period to all the way up to the Middle Ages, um, her name is Annette Yoshiko Reed, and she has a book on how did they think of the Enochian literature? What was their their thought? And then I I heard uh, Doug Hamp say that prior to the Council of Nicaea, all of the church fathers before then understood understood this to mean angels. So kind of this uh, human view, line of Seth view, was first postulated by uh, Africanus. But it became popularized and, in a sense, canonized by Augustine. And roughly around that time, the Catholic Church banned it as heresy under penalty of death. So there was, you know, one or two guys, you could argue, that had this differing view. And if you look at their writings, they don't use scripture to come up with reasons. In fact, if you read Augustine's quote, he says, we know that these demonic beings are molesting women in our time. So he's talking about, if you've ever heard of incubus and succubus, where where demonic beings are assaulting men or women, he's saying, we know this stuff is happening in our time. Oh, but it definitely didn't happen with angels and men before the flood. And he doesn't give any reasons to say why that is. So, again, one of the things I'm trying to do is go, how did how was this thought of? And if you have one or two guys that hundreds of years after the fact come up with a new theory and they don't bring biblical exegesis to the table and say, here's why, I think that's extremely suspect. And I would go with you know, the dozens of early church fathers and how they thought of it. I would go with how the text seems to say Ben Elohim is angels, unless unless there's a better answer. And so far, I don't see any reason to insert Seth in there or any other human lineage when it seems distinct from daughters of men. Sons of God, daughters of men seem to be talking about non-humans and humans. Any Thoughts on that? I'm on exegesis. Exegesis. I, you, I, I had you at exegesis. 
Yes, so you did. Exegesis is taking out from the text what is in there. Eisegesis is when you put in your own. You're reading something okay. into it. Thank so, you. sorry about that. No, no, sorry. That's, that's okay. We're, we're toss around these words. Learning new things every day. So, when someone looks at Genesis chapter 6 and they're taught as they are in seminaries, I'm told, the pastors are, in our day and age, evangelical pastors are taught, this is not angels, it's the line of Seth, and they have their reasons why. Mm-hmm. There's there's no way around it. There's nothing in the text that says Seth. Right. And then you have to ask all sorts of questions. We've gone through some of them on prior talks, but like how do you get giants from two humans you know why? It, why does it say men in one phrase and sons of God in the other? If if really God meant to say humans and humans, mm-hmm. like there's all these reasons. And then Bain Elohim, which is the same word that we know in Job was used because it's talking about angels being at the time of creation. So we know humans weren't there yet. So there's all these exege- exegetical reasons why we can say it has to be angels. This is how. Uh, even in, even the Septuagint, I'm told, directly translates translates sons of God as angels. So that was what did you say? Like seventy two scholars, six from each tribe, or something like that. Um, yeah, it, it was. Uh, I yeah, I don't remember that because I specifically read it that morning. Oh, okay. And well, br- and brought it with me. I, so well, thank you for that nugget because I. I I retained a shred of it, but anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's that's how they understood it. So when when they translated the Septuagint of the Old Testament into Greek, they act they didn't use sons of God; they used angels because that's that's the way they felt it best translated. And then when it comes to all this extra biblical literature, uh, Enoch, Jubilees, Jasher, you know, kind of expanding on this Genesis six story, can we say it's authoritative? Not necessarily. But unless we have a conflict with Scripture, I think we can say, well, maybe it, maybe it expands on it. If there's a conflict, yeah, better throw that out because our Bible's our litmus test. But uh, yeah, and and apart from that, now apart from we're we're trying to zero in, you know, granularly on Scripture. But then you've if if. Our view is wrong, and this event didn't happen with angels and giants and all this crazy stuff is in our Bible, and we're just reading it wrong. Then we should not have sightings. We should not have explorers saying they saw giants. We should not have giant skeletons and skulls. We should not have Josephus, you know, one of the most respected historians um, around, I think, 100 A.D., saying the bones of these giants are on display in our museums to this day. So we've got so much evidence of this apart from the Bible that just corroborate what we're trying to say is exegetically, we think we're reading it correctly, extra-biblically, books like Enoch, which was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So whoever were the scribes were that are recording Old Testament canon, they thought it important enough to record Enoch right there along with it, you know, so it was an important document. So we're, we're that's what I guess that's what we're kind of starting this podcast to do is let's flesh out the reasons for making the case that 
This is the event that actually happened. What were the results of that? Well, one one thing I would add is um, when you say, um, "How can two humans make a giant?" Um, I think that I think that that's already been shown um, when you look at simply look at uh, there's giants today, like giantism. Giantism. Yeah. Um, there's giants today, um, and maybe maybe through sin and through the tainting of DNA, when you have giantism, you are probably not going to live long, and it's you know the strength of the giant is taken away. Um, Andre the Giant, I have to bring up. Yep. Very, very big man, very strong man. Um, and so, you know, maybe he had a little less taint. Um, but I would imagine that the giants they're talking about in the Bible were bigger than him, I would imagine. Yeah. Excellent point, Don, because let's let's get into that, uh, Luke. Let's Let's talk about, couldn't it have just been a genetic anomaly like giantism? Um, so here's, here's what we know from, uh, descriptions, historical writings, um, bones that have been found. So you and I, every human has, uh, we have plates in our skull and there's, there's divisions between them called sutures. And when they find some of these skulls like that are elongated, what they find is it's missing what the, I call the sagittal suture. Um, I might mess this up, but it's basically like, I think we have three sections. So there's like a dividing line in half and then like side to side. And these elongated skulls are completely missing it. They only have one going all the way front to back. So some, some people have said, oh, these elongated skulls, you ever heard of headboarding where they put the board on the baby's head and they believed it that well you're not going to change the sagittal suture pattern all you're going to do is reshape it so that's one thing you have to contend with the other thing is the eye sockets are something like 50 percent larger um the sometimes they have double rows of teeth they're polydactyl they have six fingers six toes um are you talking groups of these skeletons are you talking single Sometimes groups, sometimes there are, there are literally hundreds that are found with these features. Um, DNA testing that has been done that shows that they're not of Native American lineage when they're, you know, supposedly found in like a, an Indian burial ground or something like that. So you've got all these genetic anomalies. Here's another one I, on a episode of Blurry Creatures, they took a cadaver saw to some of these bones that they found and they couldn't saw through them. So the bone density was different. It wasn't that they were just larger and, and yeah, just larger and stronger. They were they actually couldn't cut through them. So we have major, major differences. And then you've got uh, you know, the historical accounts of of people seeing these things on island. Um, I need I need to look up the the name of this uh, Italian explorer, but you know he saw him on the coast of this island, and they chased him back to his ship, and they had to turn his cannons on them. Um, so we've got all of those kind of things. Now, giantism, uh, like you said, it's a genetic mutation that makes them weak. So if you're talking about a, a nine foot, uh, you know 
based on the cubit, Goliath was somewhere around 10 foot. I can't imagine he was a pretty weak guy. And if we're talking about some of these features, um, this is another thing I need to look up the exact info about, but I guess Galileo came up with a mathematical calculation that you can use to say what the the mass of a person is, like the weight based on cubing their height and weight or something. So what's fascinating is, uh, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll look this up so we can we can do this for next time. But like, so Og, King Og in the Bible, his bed was fifteen feet six inches, and it was made of iron. So number one, that's a huge bed. Number two, you wouldn't use iron unless. You know, yeah. iron was probably kind of scarce. Well, they would to come across to fit his harem. Yeah, think. well, his harem could be, could be, but to but to make it of iron anyway, he's said to be f- around fifteen feet based on the cubits, and that would put his weight at thirty one hundred pounds. So we have these instances where it's like, yeah, giantism. These people die early. They're really weak. Um, some have suggested that Andre the Giant might have had some some uh, Nephilim uh, DNA. He was by no means weak. No, and, I mean, that guy could pound, you know, 30 beers and have barely a buzz. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it's worth exploring that. I had a coworker of mine say, oh, yeah, they're like basketball players, you know, Shaquille O'Neal. It's like, yeah. well, not when you have differences in the the eye sockets and the structure, double rows the structure, the structure of the body. and I, I neglected to mention the 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 volume of the of the brain cavity is 20 to 40% larger so you aren't going to get that from headboarding um and the incas i guess were apparently they only interbred with one another and they could only become inca if they had these features so there was like a well you know in history where the gods are like, or I'm sorry, where like kings and pharaohs thought themselves God? Yes. Like what made them think that they had the right? Like maybe they actually had this genetic differences. They had abilities and people worshipped them. Well, they and, and we talk about Saul being a lot taller than yeah. everybody else too. And maybe that was something that they did back then. And they would look at somebody. and But you also had lines... You also had royal lines also that you probably would get short people here and there, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the rebuttals. You know, if you're particularly looking at Egypt, you're like, well, where's the giant pharaohs? They weren't. I mean, you looked at the bones of the mummies. They were kind of smaller guys. So just going back to what you were saying about the how the early church fathers viewed things and obviously this is a respected jewish historian josephus and i'm going to play um this is derek olson talking and he's going to be quoting uh josephus from his book uh jewish antiquities and this should come through pretty clear yet a megalith alone buried us to the knowledge that was lost in the great cataclysm i think that is brilliant thought and so we've got even guys like uh, you've probably heard of the, the historian, first century historian Josephus. Yeah. So this guy, um, 
was a first century Roman Jewish scholar, historian, and in his writings, he references ancient giants in several places. And here's a quote from his greatest work called The Antiquities of the Jews. And again, I think this is important uh, because of the subject we're talking about. This is not the Bible. This is a extracurricular ancient text. And he says, quote, there were till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. The bones of these men are still shown to this very day, unlike to any credible relations of other men, end quote. Amazing quote from a first century historian. And to think that in his day, they basically still had these giant bones on display. How crazy is that? Yeah, it's the Smithsonian wasn't around yet. Well, no, I mean, it's always been this fascination of humanity that there are these giants around and stories of them. And kind of think about the old ancient museums, right? Like everyone needs something weird, the creep show. So I think that's, uh, that's definitely interesting that Josephus uh, documents that. So it gives us an, another, in, another nugget, another insight into what was the thinking of old before things got tainted and the doctrine of Seth was sent out into the world. Yeah, I think as, we, as we're trying to understand history and biblical narrative, like that's kind of the goal, right? We want to understand it correctly. Um, I guess uh, Steve Quayle has, has said it this way, understanding, and I might be paraphrasing, understanding the Genesis 6-4 event is the Rosetta Stone to the narrative of, of biblical history. If we don't understand what took place and why it matters throughout history and to today and the future, and what Jesus meant by, as in the days of Noah, so it shall be again, um, we're missing a lot of context of our Bible. You know, I, I my opinion is it explains the flood better. It explains why a lot of these tribes uh, God told Israel to completely wipe out, every man, woman, child, and beast. Um, and, you know, while you can come up with an answer apart from it, you can say, well, you know, God's righteous and he can wipe out whoever we want he wants i think you know i think we give ammunition to critics of the bible when we when we kind of gut it of its meaning and that's kind of what we're doing is trying to say look this is the this is what it m- meant to say this is how the church fathers understood it to mean and these other views they're not really supported by the text and they create a more of a monstrous God that, you know, I, I know, I know, uh, one, one thing people like to say is, you know, God is glorified in his destruction as well as his, you know, his, his loving attributes. But then when I think about like, what is the overall picture of God in the Bible? 
is always this redemptive, merciful, you know, trying to restore us um, to the family. And so if he's if he's not going to give opportunity to do that with the flood or with wiping an entire group out, we kind of have to ask why? Why? Why is? Why do you have this character here? And you give Israel all these chances, you know, and you're so gracious. And you went to the cross while we were yet sinners. And it doesn't fit. But if we can say, this is the story that actually happened. And there was reasons, merciful reasons, that you had to wipe things out and start over and protect the DNA of humanity because the Messiah was going to come through humanity. Um, then we see God's mercy in the flood and his grace in the flood and the mercy in wiping out these uh, infiltrated groups of people um, that would have corrupted Israel's line. Yeah, and it, um, obviously with all the effort that the, the Satan and his seed and, you know, those that are with him, um, have, have made attempts and have failed. Um, he's not given up. Um, and, uh, so obviously the cross has happened. Redemption has happened. We're under a new dispensation of grace right now, but the enemy is still like a roaring lion. And, um, I want to read from Daniel because this ties into the Genesis narrative uh, that you read in Genesis 3 about this beginning, the seed of the serpent. Here is this, the seed of men quoted in Daniel talking about a future kingdom, a future um, time period that we may be living in right now or it's close upon us. So this is the Daniel explaining the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, and it's this statue that had different characteristics, one parts of gold, parts of, uh, of, of, of other metals, silver, bronze. So Daniel is, is describing the different kingdoms of this statue. And then, uh, this is uh, Daniel 3 and 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of pottery's clay and partly of honor, iron. So a lot of people that I've read, commentators, when they talk about this part of this statue, the clay, that's in reference to us because we were made from the dirt. We were made... Uh, like as a part of clay, you know, um, and partly of iron. So the iron part is kind of interesting on what that represents. So partly the, the feet was partly of clay and partly of iron. The kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with sermonic clay. As the toes and the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially fragile. As you saw iron mix with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. 
um, and then he goes on, you know, that, that kingdom. Um, so that's, that is a coming kingdom, a coming, it's, it's encoded. It's, it's, uh, it's prophecy. It's not entirely understood, but it's another example in the scripture where seed is mentioned. And this is talking of the seed of men. And obviously we got to look at the word in its entirely and lump it all together and try to find the context of it. Um, but it's it just, it's something else to think about. And obviously the Lord does say that the wheat and the tares he's going to allow to grow up together. And wheat and tares look alike. So you got the seed of the enemy and the seed of, of God, you know, they look identical. And it's not until the wheat becomes mature and it has the head that identifies it as, as wheat. And I've heard it described that wheat, when it is mature and is getting ready for harvest, the head of it actually will bow down, which is kind of interesting to think of as a, as the bride of Christ, the wheat is in submission to the Lordship of the Lord. Whereas the tares that looks like the wheat, when it comes to maturity, it still stands up straight and is almost in a posture of being proud. And so it's symbolism there that God is allowing there's times obviously in the old dispensation, the old testament, you referenced it where God was cutting cutting off the enemy. So maybe in the new dispensation since Christ, God is not taking the action that he did of old. I can't think of any times after Christ where the Lord directed a conquest. There there wasn't the slaughter of people, you know. So he truly is allowing the, the tares and the wheat to grow up together in this dispensation. Yeah, and there's, and there's also verses talking about the fullness of sin being allowed to take place, even in the Old Testament, right? So there's, there's the idea of, of letting, that, letting that happen until the right time. And he does that primarily out of mercy, right, to, for, for people to repent, but yeah, no, I that's really fascinating about the about the the physical um, aspects of those plants, and I think that's what's so amazing about scripture is and the words of Jesus and the and the inspired words of the authors is there's so much meaning behind these things, and we lose it when we don't take things literally when we don't dig in and go, why was that? Why were these words chosen? You know, um, I mentioned it on the last show, but I think in our, in our Hollywoodized, you know, media saturated environment, um, we're so used to fiction all around us. We see something you know, like a superhero and we go, yeah, that's good, it's good fodder for a movie, you know, but that stuff isn't real. And so when things like this come along and you're talking about a literal giant or, or something like that, 
our gut reaction is to kind of recoil and say, no, that's in this category. That's in fiction. But I think in you go back thousands of years and they didn't have that type of culture, uh, words were in their infancy of what they meant, right? And a lot of the words that we use, we, we flip them around. We say something, something's good that's bad and bad that's good, you know, just as slang. But, but words have so much d- deep, re- rich meaning when you go back to their source. And it's amazing the things that you can pull out from, from, from Scripture digging into these things. And that's, that's God's esoteric, you know, his glory to hide things and, and ours to, to figure them out. Well, keep asking questions. We don't purport to have all the answers by any means. We're just a few, you know, knuckleheads like uh, Luke and Nate say on Blurry Creatures trying to, trying to ask questions and understand uh, understand it and and as we flesh out all these questions and then get into why does it matter what is it how is it relevant um i think we want to understand god's word and we want to understand the times and be able to interpret the seasons that we're in and what's coming and how this how this has a tie into our our current uh life and 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 what's to come so and there was one thing i wanted to add mm-hmm. um one and and i know luke has brought this up multiple times uh we have to be careful and i think you brought it up as well yeah we have to be very careful because um when we start reading in between the lines uh if something is not taught to us by the spirit it's we just we just don't know what we're playing with and that's just something that we want to i think keep in mind uh, as we go, and um, at the end of the day, we have to understand that there may not be a, a direct answer for us in this lifetime. Um, but you know, quite honestly, I think that uh, God does want us to look into things as long as we don't um, allow it to uh, damage our faith. Yeah, I think I think asking these kind of questions and having skepticism is healthy. And it's only going to sharpen each other, right? Because um, As iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron. And, and Paul said, let us reason together. So there's, there's a benefit to working these things out. And, you know, as they did in the early church, you didn't have necessarily someone with a you know a seminary degree leading a leading a house church it's just everybody going well this is what i think it means and and people talking it out and and kind of reasoning together right so we want to be free to be able to do that and then be able to push back and go well i don't think that's correct and here's why or that's in conflict with this over here or whatever so we want to be good good Bereans and search out the scripture and see if they be so right well, what does the word say? It says, study to show yourself approved, that you're rightly dividing the word of truth. And um, you're right. The The people that were living, when Jesus was on the scene, there were some that did, and there were some that didn't. And the ones that did knew the the Old Testament, knew the writings of the prophets, and were 
looking forward to the coming Messiah because they saw evidence of the Messiah coming, coming, coming. All these prophecies that were written in there were, uh, as a family, um, were in the book of Luke. And it was quoted in Luke 1 about Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous men and women. Zechariah was serving in the temple. Um, you know, and so he was doing good works. Um, there was, uh, when Jesus was, was born and circumcised, was brought to the temple, and they did, Joseph and Mary did what was traditionally taught by God to Moses. This is what you do when you circumcise your firstborn, you dedicate them, and all this type of stuff. And it was, um, there was two people that, it was Simeon. Simeon was a just man that the Lord had said that he would see the Lord or see the salvation for the people of Israel and for the world in it before, before he died. And he literally got to hold the Messiah and he had the revelation of it and began to prophesy you know, and then there was somebody else, uh, a, a female. So it's interesting that there's these individuals that the Bible records that they were good stewards of the word. They studied to show themselves approved, even of the Old Testament. And they, they, they uh, were able to see some of these things fulfilled in their lifetime. So obviously we got, a, we got the whole book now. Um, and that's all we're trying to do, that we're trying to rightly divide the Old Testament with the new, what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24 with his return, and how does the days of Noah that Jesus talked about, how does that tie into the future that we're living in? Yeah, yeah, and that's kind of what, when I was talking about all the um, archaeological and, and, you know, your Josephus quote, if we are understanding Genesis 6-4 incorrectly, we shouldn't have these kind of things. We shouldn't find these anomalies and these discoveries and these, you know, uh, secular writers, talk explorers talking about these events. Well, and, and, uh, and one, one more thing to add is that um, nobody really questions, at least in the, in the Christian circles that I know, um, about... Uh, in the book of Job, um, when they, when, when God talks about, you know, the behemoth and the giant creatures, well, we see skeletons of giant creatures. And so, um, that's a, that's an excellent point. And maybe let's, let's end on that. He says the tail is like a cedar. A cedar tree is between 40 and 80 feet. And And the strongest bronze. Yep. Um, and how were the, Men of great stature in Canaan describe like cedars, mm-hmm. forty to eighty feet possibly. So, um, so did I just sink my idea yeah. at, at the last minute? We've we've got you know uh, we should look at that in Numbers thirteen and fourteen again. We looked at it last last week, but uh, I was listening to some commentary on it, and I guess God Himself 
says, look, I took care of the Amorites who were as cedars. So that's not even, you know, Joshua and Caleb saying what went on or the 10 evil spies saying what went on. God himself is saying, I took care of these guys. So, (laughs) yeah, language like that, I think, is on purpose. And uh, when we take it, at least if we start taking it literally, and if we've exhausted that and going, well, it can't mean that, we can go into, you know, figurative language. But I think there's so much richness to the Bible that we miss when we, we allegorize or we metaphor, metaphorize. Ooh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Ooh, I like that word. Yeah. And, I, and I think it is, we, me and Peter did discuss this uh, maybe last week. The whole Bible shouldn't be treated literally, but you should be willing, in my mind, in studying it, at least look at it literally and 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 kind of pray about it research it meditate on it and see whether it is literal or whether it's not because some things are types and shadows and some things are literal and we need to we need to know which is which and i i know a friend of yours was kind of rebuttaling and um the testimony of the the spies saying, well, they were lying, you know, they're, they exaggerated. Well, when they gave those accounts, Caleb and Joshua didn't, re- it's not recorded that they rebuked them or called them out and said, you're lying. That's not, you know, you're exact, you know, no, they actually went along with it. And it, the issue wasn't the description. The issue was they lacked the faith and trust in God to deliver them or, or to uh, make their way uh, victorious in conflict against these, these large men. Yep. And, and now, now think of this too. Let's, let's think of this. If they were lying and instead of, you know, cedar tree people, they were like, seven foot compared to, you know, a five foot Hebrew. What would Joshua and Caleb's response would have been? We can take these guys. They're not much bigger than us. No, their response was, God is with us. You see? So the response, not only is it not rebutting, it's faith. If the the 10 evil spies were, were lying about their stature, it wouldn't have been about faith. Joshua and Caleb would have, would have said, you're lying, and not only are you lying, but they're not much bigger than us. We can do it on our own, right? So it just, it diminishes the whole picture of why God punished them for 40 years in the desert, because their lack of faith, it all comes back to that, so... All right, excellent, guys. Um, we'll keep keep it coming uh, with questions and and digging in. And um, I mean, I think it only does us good to to talk about differing views and bringing up questions because, like Luke and I, don't think of all of these things. Like we kind of already know where we stand, but we want to be able to have good answers for good questions. So. All right. All right, thanks, guys. All right. Until next time. Enjoy your weekend. All right, take care.
All right, see you, bud. Bye.